Please let me invite you to stand. Let me just uh, briefly pray, and then I'll read the Bible text for this morning's sermon. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that you'd please bless the reading of your word this morning. I pray that the words we read, Father, would move our hearts, that I would be able to explain and apply what this passage teaches. Father, what ultimately matters is what you say and what you want us to learn. Uh, Please help us for Jesus' sake. Amen. This is Acts chapter 18, verses 18 through 28. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Syncre, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on leaving of them, or, but on taking leave of them, he said, "I will return to you if God wills." And he set sail for Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Let's pray. Holy Father, please send your Holy Spirit powerfully upon us this morning. Please pry open our cold and resistant hearts. Put away all the distractions that would keep us from hearing you. And give us grace, Father, by your Spirit, that we might hear your word, believe it, obey it, and rejoice in it. For Jesus' sake, amen. Amen. Please be seated. Raquel mentioned that she didn't know a lot about the, some of the different denominational issues. And um, one of the things about being a clergyman, a minister of the gospel, is you do spend a fair amount of time thinking about denominational distinctives. Sort of why choose one group over another group? Why do that? And uh, so I've been given the opportunity in my Christian life, as maybe you have as well, to think through the theological distinctives of the Presbyterian Church in America, of which Metrocrest is a part. And uh, I've thought a lot about those distinctives. In fact, my whole church thought about those distinctives. We came from an Episcopal Church background, and uh, together we decided to join the PCA. And one of the reasons we joined the PCA was because we found ourselves in agreement with the theological distinctives, the uh, things that make the PCA sort of what it is. Uh, There are a number of distinctives uh, that are very important. They're important to me. They're important to you. Uh, One, of course, is the authority of the Bible. 
Uh, we believe very, very much that God's word is authoritative. It is his inerrant, infallible, and urgent uh, call to you and me, to the world. Uh, it is the way that we grow in Christ. It's the way we come to know Christ. Uh, we have in the PCA and here at Metrocrest a very, very, very high view of the scriptures, of the, the Holy Bible. That's actually something we share with a lot of different Christian groups here in Texas. There will be a whole range of churches that would say with us that God's word is the final authority. So while it's a distinctive for us as evangelicals, it's not the one that sort of sets us apart, perhaps, from some other groups. Um, Polity is certainly one of the things that sets us apart, the way we structure our church. Uh, We have elders. We have a plurality of elders. And I've got to tell you, one of the things I've loved most about becoming a Presbyterian is coming to understand and appreciate and and really treasure the polity that we have. It's, I'm convinced, a biblical polity. It reflects what we see in the book of Acts, where Paul busied himself, among other things, with appointing elders to help govern the church, uh, to help lead the church in mission. And so our polity is certainly an important distinctive. But the one I want to focus on this morning is perhaps the one people tease us about, Uh, the one that people sometimes disagree extremely passionately about, and it has to do with our belief in the sovereignty of God. We believe in the sovereignty of God. Uh, We can have interesting discussions with people, we can have debates with people, but I'm convinced that the sovereignty of God is what the Bible teaches us. If you really take Bible authority seriously, you're going to have to come to terms with what the Old Testament says about the authority of God. According to the Old Testament, God reigns over everything from creation in Genesis right through all the affairs of men, all the unfolding history of the nations. God really is the Lord who reigns over everything. And the Old Testament proclaims that. Um, in fact, it's, it's probably the central proclamation of the Old Testament. There is a God in heaven who cares about us and who rules over the world. And that's doing a lot of boiling down, but it's hard to miss it. If you really take seriously the authority of the Bible, the Old Testament proclaims it. And it's also the central proclamation of the New Testament. In fact, um, in one place we're told that to say Jesus is Lord is the essence of the gospel. To say that Jesus is the sovereign one is the gospel. Now, connected to that is what the sovereign Lord has done for us. That's, that's centrally important as well. But to say Jesus is Lord, according to the scriptures, you can't even say and mean apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. Uh, this beautiful version, by the way, is uh, for, from uh, Aidan McAnally, who made it by hand. Thank you very much, Aidan. Jesus is Lord. That's not just a Presbyterian distinctive. It is a Presbyterian distinctive, but more importantly, it is the Christian distinctive. It's what sets us apart from the religions of the world. It's what sets us apart from from atheism, this idea that God 
has a plan for the world and, and it has taken human form in Jesus Christ. So that is one of our distinctives. And it's actually a distinctive that lies at the very backdrop of the passage we're looking at this morning. Uh, let me get you to open in your bulletin to this passage. Uh, it's Acts chapter 18. You'll find it on the salmon-colored sheet of paper. Uh, better yet, you can look it up in the Pew Bible. That would be good because I'm going to be looking at a couple of other cross-references. Acts chapter 18. In our Pew Bible edition, it's uh, on page 1180. I've called this morning's sermon, The Mission to Ephesus, the Sovereign God. And it's at this point where you really begin to realize that the writer of the book of Acts was kind of a Presbyterian. (laughs) Kind of, okay? He certainly believed in Presbyterian polity. He certainly believed in the idea of elders who came alongside even the apostles. So Peter talks about his fellow elders. He talks about those who with him have responsibility for the life of the church. And here in this passage, as right through the book of Acts, as in many other places, we get a glimpse of how the apostolic church and how the apostles themselves viewed God. It shows up in an, in an interesting way. Uh, this part of Acts chapter 18 is really a, a section that includes a whole lot of moving around, a whole lot of doing stuff. Uh, it says... In uh, verse 18, Paul stayed many days longer, that is, as, as he was uh, called to serve the church uh, there in, uh, in Acts chapter 18, uh, as he's called to serve the church in Corinth. He stays there a longer period of time. Uh, he takes leave of the brothers. He sets sail back for Syria, back to Antioch. He takes with him Priscilla and Aquila, these two people who've shown up in the chapter. He goes through a place where he cuts his hair, for he was under a vow. Uh, so he's, he's living out his faith in some concrete ways. Uh, he, he came with these others to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. That's interesting, because back in chapter 18, he talks about having a new focus, which was not to really focus so much on the Jews, but to focus on the Gentiles. But here, Paul goes, as he usually did in the book of Acts, to the synagogue, and he goes there to reason with them, to to, uh, talk to them about what the Old Testament scriptures taught. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, though, rather than staying, he declined. So you have this picture of a very, very active Paul. He's He's going, he's doing. In fact, Acts chapters uh, 1 through 18 find their center point, in a sense, humanly speaking, in this Apostle Paul. He's going, he's doing, he's working, he's proclaiming, he's teaching, he's suffering, he's enduring hardship. Paul is on a mission, and Acts tells us about it. In fact, wouldn't be an exaggeration to say that, humanly speaking, Paul is kind of the central character in some ways. Humanly speaking, in the book of Acts, he, he just stands out. The man who wrote the book of Acts, who also wrote the Gospel of Luke, Dr. Luke, was a companion of Paul. And so Luke knew a lot about what Paul did. 
And so you get a picture here of what the Christian life looks like. What does the Christian life looks like? look like? It looks like mission. It looks like engaging others for Christ. The Christian life is about mission. It is about proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. It's about worshiping Him. It's about sharing fellowship in Him. But it all leads us towards proclaiming Him. Just as He came in the world, into the world to, to preach the gospel... So that gospel ministry, that mission has been entrusted to the likes of you and me. And so Paul's mission is very similar to our mission. Like Paul, we're called to be missionaries. We may or may not go to different countries. We may or may not cross cultures. But we're all called to mission, to proclamation, to living out the Christ-like life of caring for others. Um, it's always a delight to me when I look around the room and see a church member who's invited a friend to church. <clears throat> you may not feel like a missionary. It may feel very simple. But let me tell you, there is nothing more Christ-like, there is nothing more apostolic than to reach out to someone you care about and say, come to church with me. Come and share fellowship with me. Come with me and let's learn from the scriptures. Uh, one of the things that stood out in Raquel's testimony a minute ago was how many people God used. You know, God could do skywriting. He could, but he usually doesn't. The way he gets our attention is through people. He sends people who reach out and Jesus' name and invite people to learn more about him. I, I know I can point to that in my life. I, I'm supposed to meet next week with a representative of the Gideons because uh, I am personally indebted to the Gideons. Uh, when I was a little boy, I think maybe first grade, the Gideons were given permission in Baldwin, Mississippi to come and hand out little copies of the Bible. I still have that Bible. And I'm indebted to them because... I wasn't a very receptive recipient of the Bible. Uh, I was pretty clueless. I, you know, uh, I just really didn't get it at all. It was only years later where that little seed planted by some retired guy who gave up an afternoon to go to the school and hand out Bibles. I'm sure he left that day thinking, boy, I may have wasted, wasted the whole afternoon, right? But actually, that little tiny seed years later, and now decades later, still bears fruit in my life. And it's often that way. You know, how many Sunday school teachers, how many Sunday school teachers teach the Bible to these little wiggly kids? Not all of us get to see them grow up, as many of you at Metrocrest have gotten to see. You see them grow up from little, little ones, wiggly, squirmy little ones who don't appear to get very much but it just sort of soaks in. The Holy Spirit applies our efforts, whatever they are, however inadequate they may be. He takes those and he multiplies them and he uses them so that generations will praise his name. Uh, Paul's mission and our mission. In Acts chapter 18, like the rest of Acts, it's just a, a nonstop description of, of human activity, humans at work, humans taking great risk, humans taking bold, decisive actions, uh, humans struggling with truth. 
Uh, Acts records in great detail these ongoing parts of the Christian life. Paul's mission, our mission. Uh, let me tell you, if, if you find the Christian life to be boring, or if, or if you find yourself just doing nothing, if it's just sort of a passive thing, probably there's a problem. The Christian life is not boring. The Christian life is not passive. The Christian life involves you and me being involved in mission in one way or another. The way it's lived out in your life will look different than the way it's lived out in my life, but we're all called to the same wonderful mission, and we're called to do it together. We, We support, we encourage, we challenge, we admonish one another in mission. And so Acts records this. But, but, it's interesting, in the middle of all this human activity, as important as it is, there is this glaring central truth that is deeper still. And that glaring central truth we get a glimpse of in verse 21. Uh, In verse 21, we get a little glimpse of what motivates the Apostle Paul, what motivates the apostles. It's what gives the apostles hope and courage. It's what moves them to take bold risks. It's what gets them out of the bed in the morning to be about this work. And it's, it's almost a throwaway line, but it, it really is, in some ways, a subtitle to the whole book of Acts. On leaving, on taking leave of them, Paul said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. God wills. If God wills. Raquel mentioned that. (laughs) I've already bought my ticket, Mom. God must will. I've got my ticket. Here in this little passage, this this is the only place in the book of Acts this expression shows up. Paul uses almost the exact same word uh, in Romans. And James makes reference to this idea. But it really is the underlying premise that, that ruled all of Paul's life. Paul understood himself as serving a sovereign God. He wasn't just doing something he thought would be interesting and useful. I guess he was doing that, but he was doing much more than that. He he was actually serving the God who created the universe, the God who sustains the universe. One of the the poets a couple of chapters ago talks about us uh, worshiping a God in whom we live and move and have our being. Paul borrows from a pagan poet to sum up this realization that the God whom he proclaimed was not just a little national deity who reigned over Jerusalem like all the other gods. They had their little cities, their little temples, and all the little peoples that they were God over worshipped them. No, Paul's saying the God we meet in the Scriptures and the God whom we see in the resurrected Christ is actually the God Almighty who created everything and to this moment sustains everything and it is His will which determines everything. 
It's not a throwaway line. It is a glimpse into what stirred Paul's heart. It's what gave him courage and hope and confidence and repentance and humility and reverence. He believed in a God who willed. And he was a part of that. Um, In the P-Rack in front of you, I hope you'll find a Bible, but you'll also find a Trinity hymnal. At the back of the Trinity hymnal, on page 847, we, we put it here not only for the hymns, but also because on page 847, you'll find the Westminster Confession of Faith. And if there's a Presbyterian distinctive worth making note of, it's the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's part of how I wound up in this church, was by reading, pouring over, thinking about, praying into what the uh, people who wrote the Westminster Confession back in the 17th century believed. What they aimed to do, was teach what the Bible teaches. So we often say the Westminster Confession of Faith is not the Bible, but it's meant to express the Bible. It's meant to express the Bible. And if you read through the version we have here, you'll see over and over again there are references. In fact, there's an online edition, which I'll post later on, where those very references are all given. You can, you can go and, and read the Bible references that that underscore and underlie every single passage in the confession of faith. The first one is about the Bible. One of the distinctives about our understanding of the authority of scriptures, the scriptures is that we believe faith starts there. The only way we know about God is through the Bible. Creation speaks of it. But it's in the scriptures where we get the clarity we need. The clarity to understand and to grow. The clarity that God wants us to have. The second uh, chapter deals with God himself. What the scriptures teach us about God. And then the third chapter is something called God's eternal decree. This idea that Presbyterians and, and countless other Christians through the ages have had. That God has a plan, a purpose. The scriptures speak of it. And this eternal decree underscores and underlies everything in our experience, everything in reality. God has an eternal plan. Jesus is that plan embodied. Jesus is that plan made personal. Chapter 4 talks about creation. And then chapter 5 is this wonderful sweeping chapter called of providence. It's a wonderful word. Providence. A couple of churches in this area are called Providence. Providence is that God, the great creator of all things, upholds, directs, disposes, and governs all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Amen. Now there's a Presbyterian distinctive worth hanging on to. There's a Presbyterian distinctive that will give us courage when we don't feel courageous that will give us perseverance when we feel weak and hopeless and helpless as we've all at one time or another felt to one degree or another. The confidence that there is someone who is in charge and it's not me. It's not you. It's not the devil. 
It's not the Antichrist. There is someone who reigns over everything and he has a name. It's Jesus Christ the Lord. And we live every moment of our lives more and more aware of that, more and more confident of that, more and more hopeful of that. That's what stirs us to mission. Knowing that God Almighty in His Son Jesus Christ by the power of His Sovereign Spirit is in charge of your life and my life and our life together and the life of the whole world, the life of the cosmos. He's in charge of everything. And the very opposite of making us robots, it actually makes us alive. It makes us aware of the world around us. And to play the role that God intends for us to play. Now interestingly, here in chapter 18 of, chapter, of, of the book of Acts, there's a little case study. Very interesting case study. Paul has this conversation as he's getting ready to leave Ephesus, as he's getting ready to take his uh, leave from them. Uh, he reminds them of God's will, which is central to what he intends to do. And then he sets sail from Ephesus. He goes in a different direction. And actually, beginning in verse 22 down through, in, through verse 23, Paul actually does what the purpose of the second missionary journey was, which is to go and strengthen the brothers, to go to the churches that he had established. He said this at the very beginning of the, of the second missionary journey a few chapters back. He actually goes, and in verses 22 and 23, in two verses, he actually goes and does exactly what he'd intended to do. He went to the churches and he strengthened the disciples. He went to Galatia. He went to Phrygia. He's making his way back to Antioch. He's doing exactly what he was intended to do. You might think that was that. But in verse 24, we discover... That while Paul is moving in this direction, doing exactly what he'd intended to do, doing no doubt what needed to be done, he's strengthening the disciples, he's going to the existing churches, he's preaching the gospel, he's encouraging and helping. It's exactly what he was supposed to do. In verse 24, we meet a new character. Someone whose name is Apollos. That may or may not mean much to you. That's the name of a Greek god. Apollos has within it the, the, the Greek god Apollo. Now he's a Jew, apparently a Grecian Jew, some, from some kind of Grecian background. Whatever his background, they named him after a Greek god. The name also means destruct, destroyer. So it's not a very positive name. Uh, a Hellenistic pagan god whose name literally means destroyer, right? A native of Alexandria. He's not from Jerusalem. He's not a Jew from the Holy Land. He comes from Alexandria in Egypt. And he comes to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man. He was competent in the scriptures. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord. He was fervent in spirit. He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. So Paul leaves the center of the stage and enters Apollos. And what is Paul, Apollos doing? Apollos is doing the same thing that Paul had been doing. He's reasoning. He's teaching. He's eloquent. Paul didn't think of himself as eloquent. Apollos is eloquent. He's got all, apparently these speaking gifts. He comes in and he starts teaching and preaching and, and explaining accurately the things concerning Jesus. But get this, he only knew the baptism of John. 
<laughs> Here's this man who's competent in the Scriptures, who's teaching people about Jesus, but he doesn't know about Christian baptism. He doesn't know about all that Christian baptism means, all that it symbolizes, all that it accomplishes. He's still teaching the baptism of John, which was a wonderful thing, but it was before the resurrection. It didn't include the idea of what Christ had accomplished. Not fully. So Priscilla and Aquila, who just happened to be there, they pull Apollos off to one side and they say, let's talk. Priscilla and Aquila, they take him aside, explain to him the way of God more accurately, and then they encourage him. He teaches. He's effective. He's successful. He actually wants to go across to Achaia, which is where Corinth is. He wants to go and uh, take the scriptures to encourage them, and, and uh, he's actually helped by them. Uh, they explain the truth to him, and he goes, and it says in verse 28, he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. That's interesting because just a, a few chapters earlier, that's what Paul was doing. He was trying to convince people who knew the Old Testament scriptures that Christ was Jesus. So Apollos comes in and he picks up the baton and he actually accomplishes what Paul had been aiming to do. He powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures exactly who Jesus Christ was. Now, let me just try to wrap all this up. What this is showing us is how there's a sovereign God who with a purpose, with a mission over all things. He has a plan. We can call it the eternal decree. It's his plan from before time. It's his plan until the end of time. He is working that plan through perfectly. He is, a, he is going to accomplish it. Paul says he is confident that God will bring to completion what he has begun. In Philippians, he talks in chapter 1, he says, I'm confident that God who began a good work will bring it to completion. And so Apollos is, is continuing that mission, that work that had been entrusted to the apostles. This new man with his imperfect theology comes in and becomes the instrument by whom God continues to accomplish the plan he has always had. Just, just a couple of thoughts about that. Um, boy, this, this passage teaches us to look at the bigger picture. You know, it is never about us. It is never about me. It's not about Metro Christ Presbyterian Church. It's not about the PCA. It's not about Presbyterianism. It is about the mission of Jesus Christ fulfilling the mission of God in the world. That's what it's about. And we want to constantly refocus ourselves. It's not about us. It's not about our attendance numbers. It's not about our budget. It's not about how big our building is. It's not about whether people particularly like us. It's about Jesus. It is about Jesus Christ. What, what an important lesson that is. Paul knew it. Apollos is learning it. God is working his purposes out. So it's, it's at once very humbling 
Because in my little world, I'm the star. Because everywhere I go, I'm there. I see myself doing a lot of stuff. And the same is true of you. We tend to live out our own little version of the Truman Show. Remember the Truman Show, that, that, that movie? We're sort of the center of our little experience. And we can easily begin to think, this is all about me. How God's going to use me. What God is going to do through me. How God's going to use me to do X, Y, and Z. Well, let me tell you, if, if Paul was not the ultimate center of the story, then there's no doubt I'm not. It's no doubt you're not that we're not. The center of the story, the purpose of the story, is Jesus, who loves us and gave himself for us, not because we're anything special, but because he is special in the depth and breadth of his love. So it's humbling It's also very liberating. It is not up to me. I can't convert anybody. I can't do anything ultimately that matters. I have a role to play. The The Christian life is an active life. There's all kinds of wonderful things we get to do. But it's liberating to know that there will not be anybody in heaven because of Bill Lovell. I mean, I have my little role to play. You have your role to play. Metrocrest has its role to play. But ultimately, it depends on him. And so that's, that's very freeing. Very, very freeing. And I hope it'll be freeing to you. It, it frees us to take risks. It frees us to try things. It frees us to be bold for him. Because even if I get the words wrong, even if my theology is incomplete like Apollos, Raise your hand if you've got perfect theology. I'll take mine down. You can memorize the Westminster Confession and you're not going to have a perfect theology. It's not about having a perfect theology. It's about Jesus. And praise God for theological teaching that helps us to understand and live into that. But we are never, ever saved by how accurate and full our theology may be. We're saved because Jesus is Lord. And he does the saving. So it's humbling. It's also very liberating. Um, and then one last thing. Uh, it's, it's also important because it stirs us to faithfulness. It stirs us to endurance. It stirs us to continue going. And we'll see right through the rest of the book of Acts how Paul suffers. How he goes, the, the last few chapters all have to do with Paul suffering at the hands of the Jews. At the hands of the Jews over and over and over again. We'll see how they come in and they have intended to kill him. In just a few verses, we're going to read about how they are set out to kill him. And, you know, if if it was all up to him, I think I'd go back to Jerusalem and find a cheap place to live, close the door and hide. Paul didn't do that. We can't do that either. We have no reason to do that because there's a sovereign God working even through the likes of me, even through the likes of you. There is a sovereign God accomplishing his perfect purposes. And that will move us to faithfulness. That will move us to courage. That will move us to hope and confidence.